Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 159. In this episode, we're talking about dementia with Professor John Swinton. Professor John Swinton is Chair of Divinity and Religious Studies and Professor of Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's also a registered mental nurse and a registered nurse for people with learning disabilities and the author of a number of books, including Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, published by Erdman's, and Becoming Friends of Time, Disability, Timefulness, and Gentle Discipleship, published by Baylor University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our series on on disability and theology, in the next couple of episodes, we're going to be looking specifically at neurodiversity. And for this conversation, we had Professor John Swinton to talk about his research and theological reflection on dementia, drawing upon his own professional experience as a nurse as well. Uh, Steph and Chris, what were some of the takeaways from our conversation with Professor Swinton? I think um, one of the key shifts in thinking that um, that John's work has helped me to undergo is in not just thinking about dementia in through the lens of loss, but seeing dementia as what's something that can actually help a culture more broadly that has had its own moment of am- amnesia in forgetting what it is to be a creature, and that is to be dependent. And dependence involves gift. And I think that one of um, one of the real shifts that can take place when you realise that your life is a gift uh, and that, you know, <laughs> so much of my life, I kind of, the kind of tacit assumption is that I prescribe the things that happen in my life. Um, and one of the real gifts of um, something like dementia is, in recognizing that I'm not the only one who has complete control over what happens in my life, but I receive um, that life is not just fiat, but response. And I think that um, when, yes, there is a, a proper place for lament in the changes that take place when someone experiences dementia of different kinds, um, but that ultimately our personhood is not jeopardized by that experience that we are held in the memory of God. And I think that that is a really, yeah, real precious insight that we need to hold on to. Yeah. I really appreciated John's focus on, on the nature of relationality as one of the big challenges with dementia as people who are suffering with dementia, uh, often lose their relationships with others uh, and others um, perceive them as different people. And so therefore withdraw uh, from the relationship that they once had. This is one of the areas that I think our modern society is so thin on uh, being so incipiently dualist uh, that we focus so much on, on cognition as opposed to um, embodied being and, and relationality in that way. And so having that as a, as a distinct corrective is really beneficial. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor John Swinton.
Professor Swinton, welcome back. Lovely to have you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So we're really excited to have you back again. And in this episode, we wanted to focus a little bit more on dementia specifically. And we wanted to hear, uh, to open this conversation a, a bit about why you began to focus um, on dementia as, as one of the areas of disability uh, so much in your writing, especially, and, and of course, in your your own uh, personal personal work um, uh, as, a, as a registered mental nurse. I wonder if you could tell us more about that. Sure. Yeah, there's kind of two, two aspects to it. One, it does come out of my professional practice, because one of the things, both as a nurse and as a chaplain, one of the things that always fascinated me was the whole area of dementia and the way that dementia care was in these days, uh, which was um, people would be in what were called big dementia wars. Uh, and they were dementia wars, because they could maybe have about 30 people, 40 people, all sitting in rows along one of these big, uh, big old-fashioned uh, hospitals, um, doing nothing all day long, um, other than watch uh, children's programs on television, which apparently was uh, the was which makes a pretty big statement about the way people were thinking that time. But then you know when you come in and begin to do worship with them, you know as a chaplain, uh, uh, you begin to see people changing. And so the music begins to stimulate people in different ways. People begin to move. People begin to take the shape and posture of prayer and so on and so forth. And suddenly you discover that people are um, behaving in ways that they don't at other times. And that always fascinated me. Um, along with that big question, you know, what does it mean to know God when you've forgotten who God is? Because the guys that were I was uh, nursing to or, or, or ministering to, some of them were academics, some of them are uh, Christians, some of them are highly intelligent people in their lives, and now something had changed and they were different. So that, that was always at the back of my mind. But the real reason I ended up getting involved with dementia at an academic level was because people kept asking me to go to conferences and to speak on, on dementia for no apparent reason, because I'd never written anything about it. My friend uh, Liz McKinley, who uh, was at Canberra, CAP Centre in Canberra, kept inviting me to Australia to talk on dementia. Uh, and eventually, uh, as I got prepared for these lectures over two or three years, I began to see it as just a really important area for me to be thinking about. Um, uh, although I hadn't really noticed it before that. I mean, I was always interested in disability and mental health, but dementia was kind of... Uh, almost forced upon me by the incessant invitations, which I'm deeply grateful for over the years. So I owe Liz McKinley a, a great debt of honour, um, but I also uh, she also introduced me to Australia, and that was another great blessing in my life. But that, these two dimensions are really how I came to, to be involved with dementia. And John, I think that um, one of the key things that comes out in a lot of people's experience with dementia in, when they encounter it personally, is that um, almost visceral reaction. Um, and I think that you mentioned it in our last episode, um, which is that what I recognise about this person is no longer there. So it's all through the lens of loss. Um, and this person is no longer the person that they used to be. Um, and I, I'd like to unpack more about um the ways in which we understand personhood and, and how this dementia particularly, as opposed to disability generally, is a kind of a crucible for 
what we understand personhood to be? Is it just rational capabilities and, and what happens when they're not there anymore? To, be, to begin with, the, the, your comment about uh, I no longer recognise the person and the person not the person. Who, that's a really interesting statement for, for people to make. And I understand completely why people make it, so I don't say that judgmentally. The, the problem is that if, you, if the person is no longer the person they used to be, then who are they? And why would you continue to care for them and love them? And that's when you get into issues around euthanasia, because that's exactly the kind of argument that, you know. but I can understand it. The other side, of it, I can, you know, if it's your mother or your grandmother or a relative, I understand exactly why people use that language. So I, I'm kind of sympathetic when families use it. I'm very unsympathetic when friends use it and other people do because it, it makes a statement. Um, but the way in which we, develop our identity is very much based on our autobiography. Right? So um, that question, he, he or she is no longer the person they used to be, tells us something about the way in, within Western context that we construct our identity. So to be who I am, I need to remember who I am. So I need to bring from the past certain facts and understandings of who I am into the present so that I can communicate something about the future, but I can also tell you who I am, because who I am is what I used to be. Uh, if I can no longer remember my past, then people start to use that language. You're not, you can't remember who he is, so therefore he can't be the person he used to be. So your memory is constructed by the stories that you tell about yourself and other people tell about you. Um, so in terms of personhood, it's autobiographical personhood in that way. Um, but the fact that people would say something like um, uh, they're not the person they used to be, or as, as people often say, I'd I don't really want to visit this person, I'd rather remember them the way they were, uh, tells you something important about the way in which personhood is constructed. So you've got that autobiographical dimension, but you've also got the idea of what exactly is it that holds you in yourself that makes you you in that sense. And Stephen Sabat, a, a very important psychologist within the area of, of dementia, in his book, The uh, uh, Alzheimer's, I think it's called The Tangled Web, something like that, he does a really interesting piece of qualitative research. He doesn't like this idea that, you know, you, you somehow lose yourself. And he talks to people who are in various stages of their dementia journey. And to cut a, a big book short, he discovers that no matter where you are in that journey, you, you remain yourself in that sense. Not to say you're not changing, you're yourself. And he says one of the problems is that we have a particular way of thinking about the self, which is individualistic, and just in the precise way that I'm trying to say. Um, but he says a better way to think about the self is uh, as having three dimensions. Self one, he says, is just when you're awake, when you're in the world, when you're a sentient, feeling, being, you're a self. And nothing can take that away from you. Um, so you're always sustained in your personhood because you're there. Uh, self too, he says, is the social dimension of, uh, of yourself. So throughout your life, you go through different roles. So you become a school uh, boy or girl, a husband, a wife, a banker, whatever it is you be. You, you accrue all of these identities and they become part of who you are. Um, one of these identities that you may pick up as you go along is the identity of being somebody who lives with dementia. Um, the difference between, uh, or the key thing about uh, self too, is that if you get something like a diagnosis of dementia, 
it doesn't have to overtake your whole life. And so you know that dementia, like many other mental health labels, tend to constrict you to the shape of that label. So you can't lose your keys anymore. It's the dementia. You can't miss your favorite television program. It's the dementia. And so everything gets subsucked into the dementia. Um, but it himself too, he said, you, you can tell a different story. Somebody, somebody tells something that's not true about you uh, and about your experience with dementia, then you can tell another story and people will listen to that. It's problematic because people downgrade you because they stigmatize your condition, but you can talk against that. So the social self in there. And it's, uh, it's that self that, uh, that is, is very important. Self three, he says, is completely out with your control because it's a gift. It's a gift that's given to you by your community. You think about how you, how do you, how do you, how do you accrue value? Unless you're a narcissist, you don't accrue value by giving it to yourself. Um, although I've got one or two friends that do that quite regularly, but in reality, you don't do that. It's always value is always something that's given to you. So a guitar or a, or a wedding ring, it's not necessarily the cost; it's what it means to you, what how, what you the songs you played at that moment in time. So value is always wrapped up in in, in, the, in, the, in that process of giving. Like friendships, always a gift. The problem with self three is that very often for people with dementia, that gift isn't given. And so the assumption is that uh, they're no longer the person they are, so therefore why would we give them the gift? And you say, well, you've got dementia, so you lose value, you lose dignity. And they say, of course you do, because people stop giving it to you. It's not because you have dementia and you lose it, it's because people stop giving it to you. So at that level, Stephen Sabat says, you can lose your personhood uh, because your community has lost you. And I think that's a very helpful way of, of thinking about what we are as human beings. We're always people who are in relationship with one another. We become who we are as we uh, as we live together, as we are together, as we give value to one another. I think this is it's really fascinating in this space because a lot of the way that we relate to one another is by the narratives that we tell, um, and yet so many people uh, want to say that because. Uh, people who are suffering dementia aren't telling the same narrative as they're used to telling or as yeah. they're used to experiencing. Uh, this then constitutes a a, a change in identity. Um, I'm reminded of the the, the infamous, famous, I can't, I can't never tell which one, uh, the case yeah. of Finney Gage, the um, oh, yes. railroad worker who had the tamping iron blown through his head. Yeah. Um, he had memory loss but continually knew he was Phineas Gage. He knew who he was, but he maintained for a while that he was no longer the same Phineas Gage as he was before. The interesting thing that I find with this is similar to dementia. People want to say that, well, they're not presenting themselves in the same way. They're not narrating themselves. They're not um, engaging that social interaction in the same way as, as you've been saying, but at the same time, then the people who are who are then rejecting this new identity or or this new uh, personal structure aren't allowing them to be able to interact in that same way it's almost the imposition yeah. or you know it's it's a a very small microcosm of orientalizing it's making someone out to be different uh from uh, from the normate yeah. um so interested within that that scope um from a theological point of view how how do we think it then about the personage of of people in relationship to uh, the 
the nature of uh, church and and their Christian and, the, the, and Christian belief in that way. Yeah, that's good. Good question. Um, well, the way I would think about it is that all of us are changing all the time. You know, I'm not the same as I was when I was 13. Um, in some ways, I am the same as exactly the same as I was with so There's a kind of dichotomy there that you never really grow up. Um, but, you, you know, think about the way in which you tell your life story. I mean, at one level, it's, it's, it's very clear that memory is not a place to trust. <laughs> you know, if you you know if you talk to any policeman, you know, they'll tell you that four people saw the same accident and all saw something different because you, that memory doesn't process itself in the way that we might think it does. And when you, I know, when you, you know, have you ever had that experience when you're really trying to remember something, trying to remember something, trying to remember something, and then it pops into your mind, right? Now the next time you try to remember that, you don't go back to the original memory; you go back to the time when it pops into your mind and of course that's completely different you're a different person you've got a different set of emotions different set of feelings so memory is fickle in that way it's, it's, it's not something that is as as pure as we sometimes want it to be um, and that has significance both for dimension but also for our understanding of who we are as human beings before God so you know when I was a younger man um, before I became a Christian I thought I was quite a decent fellow. I thought I was living a, a good life. Then I suddenly discovered when I met Jesus that uh, I'm a horrible sinner in fear of con condemnation. So everything that I thought about myself uh, turns out to be not right. Everything I remember about myself it turns to be not right. So there's always that, that that kind of uncertainty about the way that you, you, you conceive the world, which is why Paul talks about we see things through a, a glass darkly, because you do. Um, uh, but what Paul says, he says, uh, we are who we are in Christ. So we're not who we remember ourselves to be, uh, for obvious reasons. We are who God remembers us to be, but we are who we are in Christ. In other words, our identity is held in Christ, somewhere beyond ourselves in that way. Nobody knows what that means in, in, in specifics, but that's what, that's what the scriptures seem to say. And more than that, in Colossians, he says, your identity is hidden in Christ. So for all of us, we're kind of mysteries to ourselves. What you might get, what you might, might frame dementia as, is a kind of concentrated version that reminds us of who we are in, in that, that fundamental way that we are. When you, have, when, you have a, when you live with dementia, you've no, you may find yourself really thrown upon that identity in new ways. And the key would be whether other people see that. Uh, the changes are difficult to manage. That's not the point. But the centre point of who you are isn't within your neurology. It's within, uh, held within Christ. Um, so I think that's one way of, of, of thinking about it. It doesn't take away the suffering. doesn't take away the difficulties. doesn't take away the need for lamentation. But it does give us a way to find hope, a hopeful identity, even in the midst of profound changes. I think that... Um... That's a really helpful um, kind of holding intention, the fact that, yes, there is lament with the grief that's associated with dementia. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's something that um, I think that I, I definitely experienced with, with my grandfather. He was, on the one hand, my dominant experience with my grandfather was his ability to narrate his life to me. That was the point of connection, to discuss ideas with him. It was a very, he was a, hugely cognitive person in the way that he related in the world. And so when that changed the last 10 or so years of his life, 
um, it was really disorienting for yeah. us as his family. But it also was coupled with um, an unexpected um, gift, and I think there's something that um, I found in, in some of your work about the way that it, when you think of life as gift, um, and particularly I know that some of your work you've spoken about how to be human is to be dependent and anything that forces us back upon that foundational truth is actually is, is not always a bad thing. It can be accompanied with um, grief and things that cause us for lament, but that dependency can be a real, um, a real gift. Something that I, I wanted to hear, hear more from you about is I know that you've spoken about the way that understanding the kind of the relational model of personhood and the fact that we're persons in relation can be a good corrective to the purely cognitive model of personhood, as in we're just rational you know, brains on sticks. But you've, you've spoken about some of the limitations of that model um, in your, you just mentioned that before. Um, could you unpack for us a bit about what what introducing the divine into that helps us with? In 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 you know the fact that sometimes when you walk into a dementia facility, there's like no one, there's no one with these people, and therefore how are they? You know that compromises their personhood. Yeah, it does, uh, and that, and I think that's that's what's. Uh crucial about having that third dimension to a relationality because in reality you know people with dementia or, or the, the the experience of dementia is highly stigmatized so therefore people tend to avoid people with dementia we're not particularly uh, good at relating with people who have communicational difficulties so therefore that you've got that built into when you, you know the the process of, of relating um, and so, and, and loneliness is a, one of the most profound and disturbing aspects of the experience of dementia. So you've got all of these factors. So if uh, we are simply who we are as we relate with other people, then it's very easy for people to, to lose that, the personality or personality rather, in that sense, because if people abandon them, then they, you, know, you get lost in that sense. But if you have that center point, of uh, that your ultimate, you're always a contingent creature and that you're always identified and identified with, by God, then that, that third dimension, if you like, enables you to sustain your personhood even in the midst of um, situations where you're abandoned in that sense. Uh, now, having said that, the fact that people are abandoned and in and, and danger of losing self free of Sabbat's understanding uh, um, uh, of personal is a profound challenge for the church. Now, the church claims to be the friends of Jesus and claims to be the community where friendship is the essence of what they are. Claims to be a, a place where marginalized people can find a, a, a place of value and identity. Um, so it's ideally placed to uh, repersonalize those who are depersonalized by the stigmatic views of culture. So I think that's, that's one of the crucial spaces that the church can inhabit in a practical sense, but also in a theological sense, because it, the rationale for doing that is not just we like, we like to make yeah, good to people. It's not just social care. It's actually gospel um, power, if you like, uh, or a gospel imperative that we do these things and do these things well. 
Yeah, I remember really distinctly um, when one of my grandfather's friends, or he'd been someone who, you know, that my grandfather had a significant impact on in his life and he he stopped visiting him because he said he preferred yeah. to remember him as he was, you know, yeah. in full full power. And I think I'd like to hear from you what you think, like wh- what, are, what are some of the big blockages that, are, and this man was a, you know, a reverend, trained, theologically trained. What, what uh, is it? That's his As, problem. <laughs> well, I mean, like, <laughs> is it? Is it? Because, like, nine times out of ten, probably is. you walk into a church, people talking about the Imago Dei, Genesis one twenty seven. the first place they go is that this is a rational faculty that distinguishes us from the natural non-human world. Is that is that the main, is that the source of a lot of this downstream neglect of of people that no longer have that rational capability? Is that what it is or is there something else? Well, let, let me, let, there's two different questions there. So let me uh, answer the first one, by which time I've probably forgotten the second one. So but we'll come back to that. Uh, but the first one is, you know, that's that statement. Uh, I don't want to go and visit them because I'd rather remember them the way they are. You can't imagine anything more selfish than that. I mean, it's not about you. It's not about what you'll get from this encounter. It's about the person and what they'll get from that encounter, which tells you something profound about the way in which we construct our friendships within Western societies. Right? So we construct a friendship on the basis of social exchange. So I have some social goods uh, that I'll give to you. You have some social goods you give to me. We exchange them, and then therefore we're friends. Stop doing that. We cease to be friends. So you have that kind of... Um, economic stroke capitalist dynamic that runs through relationships that just manifests itself in a, in a, a powerful way in that situation. Um, so the, the key thing there is it's not about you. It's about them. But. Yeah. And like, and also I think one of the really, the unexpected things that happened over the 10 years of, you know, I'd, I'd go visit grandpa every, every weekend is that you got acquainted with a different expression of who he was yeah. that, that you wouldn't have encountered if you weren't paying attention to, um, you know, if you weren't paying attention. Yeah. I think that there's, and there's a profound there is. loss. There's a loss there. Yeah. When you're yeah. I, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, but on your second point, uh, it was actually, strangely enough, Stephanie, uh, your house, I, I was at a party at your house one day and uh, I was I was, I was going off to, to, to speak later on about theology and dementia. I was speaking to this person, who should remain anonymous. Um, and I was saying, we're having this same kind of conversation we're having just now. This person said, well, you know, surely you can become financially incompetent. And so therefore, presumably, if you have some kind of brain damage, you become neurologically incompetent and spiritually incompetent. So if you're no longer able to do the things that you did before, then, well, you, you do have a problem with God. was effectively what, 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 effectively what was said. It was what was said. What did you say? Well, I said two things. <laughs> uh, well, I smiled because I had to, I had to uh, control my uh, overwhelming crossness. <laughs> people just write people off like, because they bang their heads. So I said to him, well, uh, think, imagine this way, you're a disciple of Jesus um, and you're standing at the top of a stair 
and you trip and you fall and you tumble down the stairs. At the top of the and you bang your head. Top of your stairs, you're a disciple. Bottom of the stairs, you're not. I mean, what kind of a God image do you have that is from God is so, you know, fickle, fragile, whatever it's it is. So quickly be taken away. Exactly. So he hadn't thought of that. So we, we continue to talk about something else. Um, but the issue is an important issue. Uh, and the issue of the image of God is very, very important because you know, historically, as you say, rationality and intellect reason has been the thing that seems to mark people out in terms of the image of God. Um, but what's always interesting to me is that in the Genesis account of creation, God creates it, creates everything, uh, blows his, his uh, ruach, his spirit into everything. So at a creaturely level, we're all exactly the same. You know, if, if, if you've got the same spirit as a lion, same spirit as a tiger, so we all do that. The only thing, according to that account, that marks human beings out is that God wants to talk to us. God wants to relate to us which indicates that God who is love is a God who wants to relate. So it seems to me that the, the, uh, the idea that the image of God is to be discovered in relationality makes much more sense. Because if it's rationality, uh, then not only do you have the problem with falling down the stairs and losing your discipleship, or uh, <clears throat> your salvation, you also have the idea that the image of God is a hierarchy. But if you're a neuroscientist, you're more in the image of God than if you are a person with a profound intellectual disability, which makes absolutely no sense to me that God has a hierarchy of uh, being in the image, which means that the older and older you get, the less and less you become in the image of God. And eventually you get to a situation where you're, you, you have dementia and you fall out of the image of God. And that makes no sense. Like, but the, the idea of relationality does make sense because it's not determined by you. God spoke to Adam. And certainly we, we reflect the image in our desire, and our inherent desire. We do have a natural built-in desire to relate to one another. That can be good, it can be bad, it can be distorted, but it's always there. Uh, and, you know, you just have to read basic psychology books to know that that's always there. So I think the idea that image of God is relationality is a much more accurate, but also a much safer place for all of us, uh, because I think it reflects the love of God more fully than uh, the idea that the cleverer we are, the more holy we become. So in that concept of relationality within the divine trinity, what happens when I no longer am participating in a, like, in a recognisably kind of reciprocal way in that relationship? Um, when I when I don't really I, you know when I don't really know what the creed I don't know the, what the words in the creed mean I may be able to recite them because it's kind of this I know, I know you've spoken a lot about body memory and that was certainly true of my grandfather he could kind of you know sing along with liturgy but didn't really cognitively clock what was going on can you bridge for us the gap between what does relationality mean when I don't know who God is in a kind of intelligible way. Yeah, well, you're, I mean, you're, flip, you're framing it in the context of loss. But for many people, you know, somebody with a profound intellectual disability, it's never been a possibility in the first place, that the same kind of reciprocity that you're, you're talking about. So therefore, it, it's not an issue. Uh, so I, I think participation doesn't require reciprocity in, in that sense. If you think about it, uh, to go back to the, the Genesis account of creation, there's two creation stories, one where God creates the world 
and uh, gives Adam dominion over it, to hold it down, to crush it. I mean, the Hebrew word is really strong, to crush it, keep it in its place. But the second creation story is different. The second creation story, uh, God gives Adam responsibility to care and tend for the world. So a primal responsibility of human beings is to care. That's the responsibility that God gives us to creation, to, to one another. The necessary corollary of care is to be cared for. So God, the, what, our primary responsibility is to care and to receive care. So when you get to that stage in your life, whenever that is, the beginning of your life or the end of your life, where all you can do is receive care, where you can't reciprocate in the way that, that we've been talking about, then you don't lose your dignity, you don't lose your personhood, you don't lose your value, you discover something about what it means to be a human being that's forgotten by a, a hypercognitive society that assumes that you have to do something to be able to be anything, uh, and you have to do something to participate, you discover, no, you don't. You just simply have to be. <clears throat> and being cared for is, is part of that God-given uh, uh, perspective and what it is to be a human being. So that's the way I think about it then. Don't have to do anything. Just be. One of the things that uh, strikes me in what you've been um, just expanding from Genesis and, and in terms of that, that nature of memory and repetition, uh, which comes up so often in dementia, is uh, that dementia seems to have have parallels with um the memory patterns that we find with trauma uh, where people get locked into certain memories or regress to certain um memory and 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 focus on a certain period of time uh so for uh, many um, people end up focusing on on important periods of time in their life um when they're often when they're a teenager and things like that um there was a study done in, in, I think it was in Denmark of a uh, uh, nursing home where the, 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 the sort of pivotal period of time for all of these um, dementia patients was the end of the war. And so the, the understanding and, and the, the, the fact that they recreated the village as a, in 1945, six, seven um, period actually reduced their anxiety. It reduced their um the the challenges that they had in navigating that that village how how can we then think about so if if, if we do think about um dementia as this memorial st struggle the, the memory loop that people get into and and um how how can we then help in terms of uh working with people's memory i mean so many so many people say oh you know someone has changed but that's often because people don't actually know who they were before X date and they, the people might have regressed past or have, have um, focused on a certain period of time prior to um, that, their first encounter. So, so what, what are some um, ways that we as, as individuals and we as the church as well can, can really lean into that for uh, those who are, are suffering with dementia? That's a good question. The um, I, I think uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question actually because very often people uh, come to that stage in their lives where the people who hold their memories may no longer be there, and so therefore, as a, as a carer or a supporter, you have to kind of work out from secondhand history what this person was like and how they perhaps why they're interested in the things that they're, they're, they're involved just now or not interested in things. And to some extent, 
you, there's, well, it's two things I would say. You, you have to do your homework. So if, if, there is, if there are people around who know this person well, then you need to have conversations with them. But you, you, you mustn't allow these conversations to determine what it is that you're doing in the sense that, you know, she never used to like this. So therefore, well, I wouldn't do that. So she never used to like this gives you the, the sense that, well, maybe there's, there's a challenge here that we need to think about. But maybe she does now because dementia is, is brain damage and brain damage, you change. So the things you didn't look to like, you maybe do like uh, now. So doing your homework, having these kind of conversations uh, in and around, uh, gathering as much information as possible so that this, the strategies that you use to communicate at this moment in time are at least uh, informed by what you can find out about history, but not determined by that. Yeah. So like I have... <laughs> I have a friend who, uh, she's not certainly have dementia, but she has, she's putting together a memory box just now, because that's that's one good thing that can be done, that, you know, put in that memory box, all the things that you, you want people to help you to remember later on. So she's doing this early, and she's putting in uh, music she likes, like Deep Purple, like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, because uh, no, she's terrified in case people will play a Scottish country dance music. <laughs> When she, but it's, it's funny, but it's a logic in that. Like, so to make sure that people, you 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 have your own voice in the things that people remember when they're reminiscing with you is, is a key. So you can do, you do that earlier rather than later. But there's a kind of shadow side to all of that as well, because there is some interesting research on uh, what happens when you. Um, when you reminisce with somebody in, that, in that, these kinds of way and bad memories come up. And so you show a picture of Uncle Albert, the person cries, you think, oh, isn't that nice? She must be missing Uncle Albert. But then the, the history with Uncle Albert could be all sorts of things. And there's some fascinating stuff uh, that goes on with, uh, in relation to uh, the Holocaust survivors and the way in which their memories are, are reprocessed uh, in the midst of dementia. So there is that difficult dark side that has to be looked at. And I think for these more complex issues, the key thing for a church community is to, to have conversations with professionals to around how best to respond to difficult situations. And I actually think having that col collaboration with professionals is actually very, very important because the professionals will learn things from, from the perspective of the church and its care and the church will learn from that. So that kind of collaboration is, is a way of dealing with all of these things. So getting formed is the, the takeaway line. It's interesting you mentioned um, music in there. Uh, one of the, one of the areas that keeps seems to keep coming up with dementia is um, music and and people's ability to be able to remember music more uh, and, and have it have it have it emotionally affect them more, even if. Um, they they've long since forgotten the lyrics. They'll, they'll remember. It will act as a memory prime in in many ways. Um, in some ways, do we have like yeah? Is the church almost a, a, a microcosm of memory for people? Um, in that people have gone to church, you know, if they've been to church their their entire lives, or for a while at least, they they have the memories of the songs they've sung. They've often sung them week in week out. Um, it's participatory. They've actually sung them as opposed to just listening to them and things like that. Um, do you know if there's been any research on that? I know there, there was a large study in the UK 
done on on music and, and participatory music in um, choirs uh, and dementia. But I was wondering if if you know whether that's filtered through into um, church music. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things there. One, uh, when we think about memory, we often tend to think about recall memory in the way that I was talking about earlier on, that you, you, you bring things from the past into the future and, and remember in that sense. Um, but a, a very important part of being a human being is body memory. Your body remembers things. You know, that you practice things over time and, and your, your body just takes on the shape and form of that. Um, and it's the same with spiritual practices. So when you practice prayer, uh, when you practice singing or when you practice whatever uh, 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 physical aspects of your worship you engage in, that stays with you. And so when you come to that time in your life when you can no longer coordinate or talk about it or think about it the way you used to do, it's still there. So when you see people putting their hands together in prayer, for example, and what you see there is the fruit of, you know, many, many years of spiritual practice that now have become embodied, have been ingrained, that have been part of who you are. And unless you're a dualist, that's that's important because it is who you are and remains who you are. So uh, you, you kind of, you watch memory in, in that sense. You, you look at it and you see it. You're used to thinking about it, but you, see, you can you see it. Um, and so you really respecting these kinds of movements are very, very important. And the second thing is, um, uh, the neurologist Oliver Sacks has a really interesting book called uh, Musicology. And the last chapter of that book is on uh, titled Alzheimer's. And one of the things that he says in that book is that uh, sometimes with certain forms of, of dementia, it's not that your memory is lost, it's just you can't get to it because the neurons and the synapses are, are broken, so you, you can't get there. Um, but because the brain's plastic and because it's always constantly reconfiguring, it sometimes uses the the uh, some of the um, neural pathways that relate to memory are close to the, the neural pathways that relate to music. I mean, memory is processed all over the place, but some of the major places. Uh, and what happens when somebody hears music is that uh, it changes pathway. It goes through the brain, redirects it to that place where that memory is. And of course, when you uh, hear a piece of music, you don't just to hum along, right? It, it reminds me of an identity that you once had, people that you knew, emotions, feelings. And so when you see somebody singing along to a song, it's not like, oh, I'm not nice to sing along. They're actually remembering things that they can't remember at any other uh, moment in time. Um, and they can remember or access that memory rather, but only as long as the music plays. As soon as the music stops, the memory is no longer accessible. So the person will be left with a, a kind of warm, happy feeling because something happened, but they won't be able to identify it. So the key thing for those of us who are engaging in, in worship or engaging with people in that kind of context is to be in the moment. It's because it's a, it's a frustration because in that moment, something very special is happening, but that moment will pass. Now, our the temptation is for us to always want to be in the moment, but like Peter on the mountain, you know, well, I build another tabernacle, I want to be up here forever. Like, uh, but patience is, is, is the key, like, and not uh, acknowledging that present moment. It'll pass, but if you're there in that moment, then uh, special things can happen. I wonder if, as, as well, you've just given a, a brief um, insight into one of Steph's earlier questions where. Uh, she was asking about why do people um, 
consider that people have changed so much. It's because we're, you know, so many people are functional dualists. Um, the body and mind distinction oh, yeah. is great in the West. Uh, I find it fascinating. So you talked a lot about different types of human memory and uh, different ways of kind of holding the person together and 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 these different models. But the subtitle of your book on dementia is "Living in the Memories of God." And you know, Chris was just asking about whether the church could be a kind of like you know memory prime, you know, for 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 people. Could could you say more about what it means to kind of have this like ex- existential safety net of God's memory, and what does it mean to be held in God's uh, memory? Yeah, the idea of living in the memory of God is just simply that that we are in Christ. It's the way that God remembers us that matters. And that holds us in the place that we are. And that can change. That doesn't change. And that would never change. The task of the church is to operationalize that. Right? So it's a lovely idea. Um, uh, like many theological ideas, lovely idea. But what does it look like? And so what it looks like is a community that remembers people well. But I, don't, I don't mean that just by thinking, well, I remember how that person used to be. But you remember how they are now. So you remember in the present. And remember, arguably, remember in the future, uh, and so it, it, the, the church is the place where uh, we hold one another in memory and in uh, 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 and in, and practice practice in memory. We hold one another in physical ways as well as spiritual ways. Is probably the way I'm thinking about. It. And so it becomes a place where our memory lives and where we can feel secure, even though I can't remember things. You won't forget me. So you you are mirroring God in that sense. You, you know, another aspect about about the church that uh, I'm thinking of in this conversation is ritual and the way in which we can participate in certain rituals like the Eucharist with varying degrees of understanding of the the nature of the ritual or what might be taking place. You know, from from little kids all the way on up and uh, and all kinds of different rationalizing that might might be taking place or not and i'm i'm curious about how you see ritual uh factoring into some of this and 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 specifically thinking about you know anamnesis the idea of remembering this this uh injunction to do this in remembrance of me i'm wondering if you could say a bit about that as it pertains to this conversation well the only thing i would say really is that something like the, the sacrament is not something that simply you and I do, it's something we do together. So therefore it's, it's a communal ritual that reminds us of certain sort of things of, uh, in relation to our salvation, in relation to who God is, and the presence of God and so forth. So it may be that at some moment in time, I don't have as much understanding of what it is as you do, but your responsibility is to hold that from me because we, we are the body of Christ. And when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's not talking about it as a metaphor, it's, it's meant to be a reality, which means we can't all do the same things. We can't all be the heads, we can't all be the brains, we can't all be the memory men and women. Uh, we can't all do the same things. So if I get to a situation where I can't remember something, remember it for me. I'm enjoying the bread, I'm enjoying the wine. You don't know what, how I'm processing that, so please don't stop me from doing that. Uh, and if you want to be orthodox, then you remember for me. That, that's the way I, I, would, I would think it through. Like, I mean, I, I have a, tr- a trouble because it's the same thing with, with people, people with intellectual disabilities who are often ex- excluded from the sacraments in that way. Uh, first, my first question is always, 
Why would you ask them questions that you wouldn't ask everybody else? Who in this congregation knows what this is about? And how do you know they don't know? Unless you're going to go around and interrogate everybody. But you don't do that. You pick in the one vulnerable person in your congregation. You say, oh, it must be you. You don't know. So you can't have it. So it throws up all sorts of, of really interesting things. Um, so that, that's how I would process that, that, which I think is a very important point. And I'd like to ask you a question that's a little bit um, it's kind of adjacent to this conversation about how in the church we um, can better relate to people with dementia. And that's um, to ask you a question that I've seen um, more closer to home in terms of how, when we change the way we think about this, how does it change our model of care for people in particularly in residential care facilities and those kinds of things. And I, I've seen the way that that's been really impactful. And I'd like to hear from you how, what, what are some tangible ways that um, changing the ways we think about um, dementia can um, trickle down into the, the model of care? Um, a few years ago, I did a piece of research for Aberdeen City Council who were interested in developing new uh, innovative models of dementia care. Um, and it was, it was interesting. Uh, I'm not sure anything came of it, like lots of reports that they're done and they're gone, but uh, hopefully there's some good work. But one of the things that I noticed early on in that was the, the nature of the dementia pathway. So the dementia pathway within our own city was you begin with uh, symptoms, you, then you go to your general practitioner, you have a diagnosis, then it, it goes all the way down and eventually it ends up in... Uh, ends up in death. So you end up in like, so you get this kind of pathway that goes from, from diagnosis round to death. Like. Uh, and that strikes me as, as an institutionalized uh, negativity towards the, the dementia journey. So I think one way in which we can begin to rethink that at a structural level that you're suggesting is by changing the, the language from uh, pathway to journey. So like a journey is, is a complicated, it's a, it's, a, it's a mode of getting from one place to another. But it's just, some journeys can be difficult, some can be complex. The, but the, journey, the terrain that you cover is sometimes easy, sometimes it's not. But a journey always has a destination. It's not going nowhere, it's going somewhere. <clears throat> and that, that, the key is where that somewhere is. Uh, whereas the dementia pathway ends in death, the journey includes life. It includes the possibility that there are things to be learned, that there are possibilities in the present, that there are structures that we can create that can help people to live well, even in the midst of their difficulties. So a simple adjustment to the language or to the concept or to the metaphor that's used for the way in which a service is structured, actually in principle, can be quite transformative to the options that carers have at the end of the day in relation to what they hope for as a destination for uh, the person or people that they're working alongside. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the um, helpful correctives that you point out in in your book on time, Becoming Friends of Time, is just this question, you know, what, why is it that we, that we assume that um, some ways of being in the world are a waste of time and opposed to others that are, worthy and I think that um, as, as a final question when we live in a world that is so fast-paced and so tethered and wedded to notions of productivity as being the grounds of worth 
it's one thing to say, and I know that I've, I've really appreciated your, your work and talking about, you know, um, being present and, and um, being present to people and slowing down the pace. But how do we how do we do that when I feel it in myself? Like I feel a frenetic pace that we kind of absorb from the culture around us. What are some what are some tools that we can keep in our toolkit to help us to do those do that hard and good work of being present and expectant and attentive to people uh, in the moment that we're in. Well, there's some really interesting research uh, on what's described as micro breaks. So a micro break is when you, uh, you're in a really busy environment and you take even two or three minutes to step outside that environment and then step back in. Um, when you step outside, you get perspective. When you're inside, you lose perspective. So you're so caught up in the moment, so caught up in the task that you, you no longer know what you're doing, which is actually a very dangerous situation for people who are working in care because you're so wrapped up in the, in the, in the, the, the minutiae of the task that you don't notice the culture of absence that goes on around you in that sense. So you miss a lot of things and, and, and unpleasant things become normalized. But by stepping out for, uh, for a few moments, by thinking uh, differently, reflecting and stepping back in, you actually go in with a different perspective and you avoid that dangerous culture that can come from not noticing things. And it seems to me that, that there's a, a kind of interesting analogy there, if that's the right word, between uh, what God says about Sabbath. You know, in the midst of all the turmoil that the people of Israel were going through, God says, take a Sabbath. Take some time out of, the, of your week. Think about me. And then go back into the week and, and do those things. It seems that, that it's like God saying, "Take a micro break," except it's a bigger micro break than two or three minutes. But it's something about that, like what I think I describe as Sabbath moments—moments when you can step outside of the business, think about God, step back inside again. And so it's just a simple meditative practice that you can incorporate into your day-to-day -day work. But it makes a difference because you just see things differently when you have just a little bit of perspective. So that's something I think it's a timeful practice that could be useful. Well, Professor Swinton, thanks so much for joining us again. It was lovely to chat with you and to, to hear more about uh, your theological reflection on dementia and just this uh, beautiful image of this corporate sense of, of, of the church and, and just the the implications that, that that has for not only thinking about dementia, but just rippling out further from there uh, to be to be the body as you as you have called us towards and just really appreciate that. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.